Yeah, part of the tweet, the quote is, also, getting a taste of the good life, going out to nice dinners, nice vacations, will make you want to work harder for those things. So basically, like, if you're young, only making 50 grand, like, you need to go get real bougie so you can know what it could be like. Welcome to The Fi Show you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Financial Independence Show, where today, Justin and I are going to be looking at some really bad Twitter, or I guess it's now called X, some really bad takes, some posts that Justin and I are just like, eh, I don't know if that's exactly true, or you are way off the mark with that. But before we get into that, and before we start to kind of roast some people, what's going on, Justin? This past weekend, uh, we had a company day off on Friday. And so me and Leslie, uh, we're also doing a little house sitting. So we got to hang out with some French Bulldogs, which is always fun. But uh, we went a couple hours outside of Austin to Leslie's family has like a deer camp out there. And so we just got away from the city, enjoyed the extra time off, gearing up for this weekend where I'll be heading to Vegas for work. And then I go straight from there to come see you up in Boston for the, the wedding celebration. Awesome, man. What is a deer camp, by the way? Is that like a... It's a big plot of land with a ton of deer on it? Yeah, it's just a big plot of land that does have different sections where, you know, part of the year they've got feeders and stuff out so that they're trying to like attract deer in. And then that way in the deer season that there's like more of a population there and a lot of people go out there from the family and and hunt deer. But it's really just a big plot of land out in the hill country in Texas. And it's very interesting landscape. Like there's some pretty flowers and some interesting trees, but then it's a lot of just like deserty dry ground and so i don't exactly know what the deer are eating out there when they're not going to these feeders but (laughs) there are are a lot of deer out there for me i spent the weekend over in the cape so for those who don't know cape cod it's like the bicep of massachusetts and the rest of the arm i guess but one of my buddies lives in falmouth which is like right over the bridge so me and a couple of my college friends got to reunite we haven't hung out in couple months for some of them, a couple years for others. So it was a really fun weekend. We got to enjoy the beach. It was great weather and got to enjoy the sun up in Massachusetts or New England while we got it because the good weather only lasts like three or four months. But let's dive straight into this thing, Justin. I know we have this huge spreadsheet with a bunch of pretty bad takes that we found on Twitter throughout the past week or so. So let's just start from the top here. The main tweet says 61% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. What are your best personal finance tips? great tweet. It's just stats. Nothing wrong with that. Someone answers, you can't personal finance your way out of poverty. I know, Justin, I mean, this is this is your story, dude. So I'll let you kind of take the reins on this one. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where like, sure, like in certain situations, is it really hard to, to do that? Like you've already got so many obligations and uh, you don't have enough gap between your spending and your income that it could be really tough. But to think that like personal finance is not a very important part of that. Like my mom grew up third world country poor. And because she was so diligent with her personal finances, like it allowed her to get to a point where she owned her own home. She got to work for herself. She doesn't owe anybody anything. She doesn't have any debt. And that allowed me then to come in and like seeing the way she handled money uh, and learn from that and springboard off of that. She had a kid at 15. Like that's 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 hard to like go back and kind of reinvent yourself at that point. But I got to take those lessons learned and then go out and make so far like a really successful journey. And I think that personal finance was a cornerstone of all that, both for her to get stable footing 
because she was so good at budgeting and she was so good at getting her expenses under control. Whereas we saw other families who came from a very similar situation and they're going and getting fast food every day and they're running up credit cards and interest payments and they're doing the pay as you go furniture where you you buy like a couch for eight years. It's the craziest <laughs> yeah. thing I've ever seen. It's, to me, it should be illegal. But anyway, like th- there's plenty of folks that are that I grew up next to who were making terrible financial decisions and it made all the difference in the world. I think the sad thing is obviously we're kind of making fun of this person because they said you can't personal finance your way out of poverty. But this is how a lot of people think. And I know as we're recording this, this is the beginning of August 2023. I think the mega millions, I don't even know because I don't play lottery tickets, just hit like the all time high. It's like 1.4 billion. I think someone in Florida just won. But I was in the gas station the other day and literally every single person in line, like I just wanted to, I was having trouble with my card. I had to go in and get gas and get out. Every single person, there's like five or six people in line bought. One guy bought $80 worth of the Mega Millions thing, hoping he's going to you know, win the billion. I think a lot of people think that way. So like this person is probably of that same mindset. Like The only way that I'm going to get out of poverty is some like huge financial windfall. And that's why people love playing the lottery. That's why people will literally go to the gas station every single day or multiple times a week and just like pray that they all of a sudden hit the million. And even without any personal finance education, they're going to be able to manage it and keep that money forever. Like, obviously, it's super unrealistic. And people like us who talk about personal finance all day know that. But I think that's a sad reality for a lot of people is like they do think that you know the Powerball or the Mega Millions is their secret to making it and becoming wealthy. Yeah, I mean, there might be a point where you're in a situation where being what most people consider wealthy is very difficult or slightly out of reach. But to think it doesn't make a difference and it doesn't take you from living a super stressed life to living a life that's manageable and that can set up your kids or the next generation for a good path. I think that's a little silly to act like it just doesn't even matter. And it's like, well, if I can't, if I can't get there, why even try? And let me just keep digging a hole kind of thing. So speaking of broke, we got another awesome, terrible take. (laughs) When it comes to personal finance, some things you can only teach yourself. So If you struggle to save anything, allow yourself the opportunity to go broke. You will get up wiser and a little selfish. (laughs) Oh, man, there's just so many things wrong with this one. Like, what? Allow yourself the opportunity to go broke. You'll get up wiser and a little selfish. Now, I'm going to give credit where credit is due. I mean, I get it. The only times we grow is through difficult times. Like, Nobody gets the big inheritance and that's what makes them good with money. Like you do have to learn some of these lessons yourself. You need to learn how to budget. You need to learn how to track your spending. You need to learn how to increase your income. You need to understand compound interest and investing. But this just sounds like the craziest advice ever. I don't know, man. What are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, I think it's interesting because like it's so black and white, like you should allow yourself to go broke, which is kind of a an odd one. Like I get that someone who has been broke before like i grew up poor and i don't ever want to go back like that does give you some motivation it does give you some perspective to understand that like money is not a given it gives some people a drive it does come with some baggage in the form of like scarcity mindset and and things like that if you've experienced those hardships then that allows you to look at everything else a little differently but that doesn't mean that like i would ever suggest someone like hey i know you're doing like okay But if you really take this to the next level, you need to just destroy your finances, go completely broke, and then you'll just springboard up. Like that's to me, like when I read this, what it sounds like they're like asking people to do is like, if you can't figure out how to like really take it to the next level, 
then it's probably just because you've never been broke before. So go make yourself broke. It's like, I don't ever go make yourself <laughs> broke. Like, sure, there might have been some lessons or some mentalities that you don't have because you've never been broke. But that's not a prerequisite to being successful. Yeah, I don't think rock bottom is a prerequisite for building wealth. Okay, on to the next one. So this has been really popular, actually. I've seen a lot of people talk about this. Here's the tweet. 401ks are a scam. It's a company's way to trap you and your money until retirement age. All right, I have a lot of thoughts here. I know we've talked about this in length in other episodes, Justin, but the first thing is just 401ks aren't a scam. Like 401ks are a great wealth building tool. They kind of came around to replace the pension when workplaces were no longer just like setting people up for life and you'd have this cushy pension after working there for 30 years. 401ks are like how individuals now can kind of take control of their retirement, of their finances. Now, am I someone who's like, you have to max out your 401k every year? 401ks are the best? No, but they're not a scam and they do have some, some benefits. And I know one, Justin, that you could probably talk about better than I can is the company match. Like you are getting so much free money from your company. What's the figure? It's like 9,000, 10,000 a year. Yeah. We get $9,000 a year and you know, in free matching, free matching. Like, yeah. So like how many places can you get a hundred percent return on investment? And we were talking about this before we started recording. Like I get it that there's certain people in certain situations where they've got these kind of no brainer home run opportunities, especially in real estate where they could take that capital and deploy it in a way that will, in the end, make them even more money than maybe investing it right then would have. But that's pretty rare, right? Like, there's not that many people who are in that situation, especially as we speak now here in mid late 2023. The other thing is, like, it's not locked up forever. It's not locked up till retirement age necessarily. And there's even some new laws coming down where, like, which will allow companies to match based off like the Roth portion of your 401k and not just the traditional portion. But the other big thing here with a 401k is that there's not many opportunities to invest money that you can either avoid taxes now or later. And so that's a big thing. I mean, we're talking about avoiding 15 plus percent in taxes. Like that's a big difference on the back end. I mean, we talk about all the time how much a difference it can make just firing your financial advisor and getting rid of that 1% admin fee. This is a big deal. The fact that you can either put money in tax-free or take it out tax-free especially like if you're a higher income earner, now all of a sudden you're getting to shelter dollars at that highest income rate. So like say 32% maybe is what you're paying on some of on a portion of your income. You shelter that from taxes now, so you're saving 32% and then you access it later in life when you're retired and you're in a bottom tax bracket and sure, maybe you pay 12% taxes on the earnings, the earnings only. Like, that makes a big, big difference in someone's personal finance. And the other thing too is the awesome thing about a 401k and companies matching is, like you said, it's incentivizing people. It is a replacement for kind of like the pension. But for a lot of people, it's the only way they actually ever end up investing in the stock market. If the 401k wasn't there with that carrot of the matching in front of them, then they wouldn't do it themselves. It's interesting. Certain countries like Australia, I believe, have these like forced programs where employees have to have part of their check put into something like a 401k. And obviously we don't have that here. And so a lot of times people are not investing for their future if it were not for the 401k. And just to get super tactical here, let's just use you as an example, Justin. You probably have over a hundred grand, maybe a couple hundred grand in your 401k at this point. I'm not sure. You've been at this company since 2018, 19? It'll be four years next month. Okay. So you have quite a good chunk of change in there. If you were to leave, though, you can then roll that over into a traditional IRA. Let's say you have a bunch of like 
pre-tax. You're not you're doing a Roth 401k, just a regular old 401k. So with that traditional 401k, with the traditional portion, you could get it into your traditional IRA. You could ladder it over and get access to it early via the Roth conversion ladder. You, we've talked about them before. You can go look them up online. It's a Roth conversion ladder. Or if you had money in the Roth portion of your 401k, you can just port that over to a Roth IRA when you leave the company, and then you'll have access to the contributions. You wouldn't touch the earnings at that point because then you'd get penalized. But So those are two ways where, I mean, you could retire at 35 at 40. Like it's not like you have to wait until 59 and a half or beyond to touch these things without penalty. You just have to get a little bit crafty. Yeah, Cody, that's true. And I mean, the reason I've got such like large sums of money in my 401k is we did do an episode on the mega backdoor, which allows you to put over $60,000 a year now into that 401k. And that's how much I believe in the 401k and those tax savings that it's affording me is I max that out every year. To me, the other kind of mental trap that this walks into is talking about like, oh, you can't access your funds until retirement. You just walk through some ways that you can. But even if you weren't doing those methods, or even if you're thinking about the earnings or whatever it is, remember that like if you're building out a plan, I hope that your plan is to be alive until you're 60. And so there's going to be a section of your portfolio that you could live off of now while that continues to build. You don't have to have your entire nest egg liquid at the start of your retirement journey you can do it in phases like you can do it in phases so that part of it is getting burned down right because you're probably pulling more than four percent of the liquid part but by the time you get to 60 that illiquid part has opened up and now that's what you're using for the back half of your life so uh, to me that's a mental trap to fall into to think that i need every dime that i'm going to need in retirement ready day one you can think about it in phases I think one of the reasons why people say this whole 401ks are a scam thing. So one thing to note is that 401ks, if you have a company match, do typically have a vesting period. So let's say you were only working at a company for two years and they've been matching the 9,000 in your case, Justin. So they give 18,000 to your 401k, but they have like a three-year vesting period that you need to be there for three years in order for their match to like, quote unquote, count. Then if you left in two years, the company's contributions, not your own contributions, because your contributions are your contributions, but the company match could then be kind of pulled away, taken out of your 401k if you left before that vesting period was up. So I think that's where some of the people get this whole 401ks or scam thing. I saw one guy on Twitter get torn apart because he wasn't contributing at all and his company was giving him like $4,000 a year or something into his 401k and then he left and he hadn't hit the vesting period yet and so there was a zero account balance when he left the company so he was like all mad about it and everyone's like you're an idiot you didn't know about vesting period (laughs) (laughs) yeah and maybe that's where some people come from i actually don't think though for most companies that that's true or at least not anywhere near that long anywhere near like three years like there might be some where you know if you left within the first six months or something they they could try to call some back but i think that's pretty non-typical and that most people can feel safe in knowing that obviously you can look into it with your finance and HR teams at your company. But like, I think most people can feel safe knowing that that 401k match is is most likely going to be theirs regardless. So I'm actually looking this up on CNN. It says company matching funds usually vest over time, typically either 25 to 33% a year or all at once after three or four years. And then it says, once you're fully vested, you can take the entire company match with you when you part ways with your job. So, and maybe you just got lucky, Justin. I'm not sure. It looks like all of the articles I'm looking at here, there seems to be some kind of a vesting period where they can take their match away. Yeah, I just did a a quick search. And I mean, this was the first stat that I came across. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But it says that 
over 44% of plans are like immediately vested. And then the rest, so 56%, use either some kind of cliff. So it'd be like a all at once, you know, one year in, once you've worked one year, boom, it's all good. And then some have a, a graded schedule where it's like, okay, after you've worked one year, then the 20% of it is locked in, two years, 40% is locked in. And then after three years, like 100% is locked in. It says, though, that there is a federal rule that says it cannot be any longer than six years, whatever that the vesting period cannot be longer than six years. Any of the jobs I've ever applied to, any of the people that I know in the industries, I've never come across one of these plans, but it sounds like it is more common than I thought. All right. Well, let's move on to the next one, which is <laughs> the best form of leverage is being debt-free. Oh, man. Okay. So this is obviously trying to dig at real estate investors, but We've had so many people on the show and real estate investing isn't for everyone. Listeners will know Justin and I aren't like super real estate gung-ho. We're just like real estate's the only way. It's like the fastest. It's the best way. But there are legitimate people who have gotten extremely wealthy using smart leverage in real estate to be able to buy multiple rental properties. I mean, just a very quick example and see if I won't embarrass myself with off the top math. If you have $100,000 and you could either buy one property with your $100,000 all cash, or you could buy four different properties that are all $100,000 with 25% down, you're going to cash flow so much more with the four properties. You're going to have tenants paying down each of those four properties mortgages. So you'll have the debt pay down. You'll also have the appreciation for each one of those properties. Obviously don't abuse leverage. Like don't be so over levered. Like a lot of people were in 07 or 08 that your like mortgages are completely underwater and you can't make your debt payments. But the best form of leverage is not being debt-free. It's being smartly levered. I mean, there's so many examples, Justin. Obviously, I always think of our friends, James and Emily, who use leverage to their advantage. They were able to get like 10 or 11 units in a matter of two years, and then they were able to cover their expenses fully with the cash flow from those rental properties. If they were to wait until they had the cash to purchase, it probably would have taken them closer to a decade to reach that same level of financial freedom. Yeah, there's no arguing that if you make the right decisions with that debt, that being leveraged is going to get you there faster than not. I mean, that's kind of the whole concept, right? It's just there's more risk, but there's more reward. So to think that being debt-free is the best form, you know, it's probably in the middle, right? Like the the best form is being intelligently levered. Then in the middle is no one having leverage over you. And then the worst is where you go out and you take on a lot of debt and then they're not good deals and you're not cash flowing. And now you're just shedding money month over month. So it's a spectrum. And to think that the only way to be is debt-free is a little short-sighted. Staying on the debt path here, I'm going to skip through a couple of these screenshots that we have in our doc here, Justin. A credit score does not show you how well you're managing your money or even if you have a dollar to your name. Instead, it's really just a score of how well you can play the debt game with the bank. It's an I love debt score. Now, some of you might know the voice behind this tweet. But even if you aren't going to be like a real estate investor or you're not even planning on buying a house, you're like, screw this, I'm renting. Sometimes having a good credit score is a prerequisite to even renting. Like I know as a landlord myself, like I am looking at people's credit scores to see, is this person responsible with their debt? Have they made their payments on time? Are they someone who's going to be able to handle the stress of having like a monthly bill? And so even if you aren't going to be a real estate investor, like the positives of having a good credit score just so vastly outweigh the negatives of not having a credit score that it makes sense. Like even if you're scared of debt or whatever, just like slowly build your credit score, put one random subscription on a credit card and put it on auto pay every month. Like that'll build your credit history. That'll build your payment history. But just not having a credit score, in my opinion, is just not a good move because you can just really shoot yourself in the foot later on down the road because you don't know what decisions you're going to make or what options it's going to affect for you. 
We'll be right back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor is one I use on a daily basis at my company, Gold City Ventures. That is the sound of a sale in your Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify now also powers in-person selling? Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store or small business. Accept payments, manage inventory, they have everything. Shopify brings together your in-person and online sales business into one source of truth, one dashboard, everything in one place. You know exactly what's going on. And now they have all these customization options. They have plug and play tools you can integrate with Instagram or TikTok or wherever. You can take your payments by phone or by tablet. Shopify makes it easy. Plus, if you have any questions, their support team is there to help you. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience and Shopify POS just breaks down that barrier to accepting payments with your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash show, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash show to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash show. Now back to the show. Yeah, my problem with this tweet is like the first half, not so much of a problem, right? Like a credit score doesn't show how well you're managing your money or like how much money you have. I could get behind that part. Like I can get behind that the credit score is is not the end all be all. But then the end of it is where it just lost me. It's an I love debt score. Like I've got a great credit score. And the only thing I really owe any money on is my primary residence. I don't love debt. I haven't like always lived in debt. I've never paid interest on anything except for this house. And it's 2.6%, right? So like to me, that's good debt. Like there's nothing I've ever had to like sit there and shed money for as far as like payments and interest. Yet I have got a great credit score because I use my credit card all the time responsibly. You know, any kind of loans that I've taken out, I pay right away. Some of them were 0% loans, so that was great. I could build in credit and I don't actually have to pay any interest. But yeah, just so in summary, sure, it's not the end-all be-all. It is not the one metric that you would need to use to gauge your success, but it also is not a flag of, hey, I just really love some debt. Let's stay on the debt train because we got one more here. And this is another gem from the same person. <laughs> if you're working on paying off debt, the only time you should see the inside of a restaurant is if you're working there. <laughs> oh man. Okay. We've talked a lot about deprivation and how you have to enjoy the five journey. Now, what I'll say is if you're like $50,000 in credit card debt, yes, obviously you should try to eliminate going out to eat and like work as hard as possible, paying down that super high interest debt. But if you're someone with student loans, if you're someone with a mortgage, of course you can go in a restaurant. If you enjoy eating out, if that's like something that brings you value and you can not over abuse it, you can go out to eat once a week with your spouse, your significant other, with your family, whatever. If it makes you happy, like go for it. It's not even, it's like the third of the big three levers that we talk about, the housing, the transportation and food. So I just don't like the blanket debt here. It's not like consumer debt. It's not high interest debt. It's just, if you're working on paying off debt and I know this person is a advocate of paying off your mortgage as fast as possible. So it's like, so what? You're just not going to go out to eat for 30 years while you pay down your mortgage. And then <laughs> well, you know, when you're in your 50s or 60s, you could finally get that meal at Applebee's that you've been dying to have this whole time. It's just like, oh man, it's it's just so dogmatic and ridiculous. Yeah. If this were like a law, then that would definitely make the rent versus buy argument really easy. It's <laughs> yeah. like, I'm just renting that way. I don't have debt. That way I'm allowed to go eat inside of a restaurant. Like that's, that's the logic here. Like you said, I mean, if you've got some of these crazy, you know, 18, 20% interest payments that you're having to make on a credit card? Should you do everything you can to cut back on any spending that you can? Absolutely. 
But to think that even in that situation that you would never go out to eat, like to me, these statements like this are just so absolute. Debt, not all debt is the same, but let's say it's bad debt. And let's say you're trying to have a conversation with someone who maybe has like an in for a great job, or maybe there's someone who you want to partner with on some kind of investment opportunity, like whether it was real estate or whatever it happened to be. And the natural thing for you to do is to meet up with them at a restaurant. Like sometimes going to a restaurant is about networking and networking can be super powerful. So I just hate these tweets that are like law. Like if you have any debt, I don't care, just the word debt, then you don't get to go into a restaurant for any reason. It's just too absolute. People love getting those clicks. They got to be as dogmatic as possible. I always try to include like almost or sometimes or most of the time like i never try to say always or never or words like that when i'm anywhere on social media because there is going to be a small subset like there are the exceptions all right let's go on to the next one this one is pretty fun this one was from today <laughs> i would argue that most people who are quote unquote successful are actually quite dumb most were lucky most know enough about one subject to get by and they bs their way to an opportunity most lack emotional intelligence Stop idolizing wealthy, successful people who just got lucky. They're not better than you. Okay, so I have a lot of thoughts on this one. Yes, this is kind of the, this is the opposite of what I was saying. Like, I think they are using the word most, so they're not saying all, which is great. But I think the way they're forming this tweet, like the people they're talking about are in the minority. They're not the majority. I think most successful people have a huge trail of awesome habits that they can use to back up why they're successful. Like someone who's really wealthy is probably pretty good at managing their personal finances. Someone who's really fit probably has a really good track record with eating and working out. Like most successful people don't just get lucky. It's kind of like the lottery mentality. I think most people who are successful did have some kind of plan, did have some kind of positive habit trail that you could follow back to the beginning. And you're like, oh, that's why this person was lucky. I don't think most people BS their way to an opportunity Maybe they lack emotional intelligence. I'm not even sure why that was included in this tweet. But I think that success leaves clues. Like I am always looking for people who are in a spot that I want to be. And then I can maybe emulate some of those actions. So if it's personal finance, I'm looking for someone with a higher net worth than me. If it's real estate, I'm looking for someone who has more experience with more doors. If it's like lifestyle design, how much time are they spending on their business versus with their family versus with their friends? I want to look for someone who seems like they have a better balance to me. If it's someone who's talking about fitness, I want to make sure they're fitter than me. And just like, I like to use someone else's success as a metric for like, should I or should I not follow this person? I I really do think that success leaves clues. It's not that most people just get lucky and wind up being successful. And I know you mentioned like, hey, I don't even know why the emotional intelligence part was in here. And I would actually like kind of pick that piece apart even. Like I think about the folks that I'm around on a day-to-day basis who are most successful at their job, especially like in sales. I think if you don't have emotional intelligence, it's like pretty obvious. And those people are the ones who struggle the most because they don't understand like what the customer's pain points are and they don't understand where they're coming from and they don't pick up on those cues and they don't know how to handle situations in a way that helps them get the emotions that they need, right? Like it's, it is a little bit of gamesmanship there, but you're trying to get them to a certain emotion. And if you don't have any intelligence around that, then you're saying things that are going to get you an outcome that you don't want because you don't have emotional intelligence. If you want to get those outcomes and be successful and make that sale, you generally do have some emotional intelligence. And then, you know, the end of the tweet, they're not better than you. 100% agree with that. And you don't need to idolize really anyone. But to then take and just say successful people are just got lucky, that's kind of putting off the responsibility of yourself 
and just saying, hey, it's all luck. I can't do anything about it. Like there's nothing I can do to become wealthy or to be successful. It's either going to be lucky, it's going to happen, or it's not. That's just a really bad mentality to have. So I actually tweeted out, it's a little bit clickbaity, but that's why I say I use the almost word here. I say if you're in your early 20s, fresh out of school, making more than $50,000 a year, there's almost no reason you shouldn't invest at least 25% of your income. Agree or disagree? It was for engagement. I do genuinely think this though, like unless you have kids or you're supporting a family member or there's like some crazy extraneous circumstance that makes it really, really difficult to save a high percentage of your income. I think it is reasonable for a lot of people making more than $50,000 a year, key piece here, because other people are like, well, you know, what if I'm making minimum wage? I'm like, well, you didn't read the tweet then. But the people who did come back to me with like semi-logical answers just came back spitting median cost facts. They're like, well, this is impossible in San Francisco because the median rent is $2,400 a month. The median car payment is 700, whatever the hell, whatever they were saying, like they were just spitting out all these median quotes. But I'm hoping at this point, if you've been in this community for a while listening to this podcast, like we are not the median. We do not need to fall into the center of that demographic. And I even gave myself as an example. I know, Justin, we have both made deliberate choices to not spend as much money on certain things. And it's like kind of a little different than the norm. And people might be like, why would you want to do that? Like, oh, I wouldn't want to have a roommate. I wouldn't want to have someone else renting out my house. I need a safe car. I need to buy a new car. I don't want an old beater car like this 96 Corolla just isn't cut anymore. But like for me, when I was living in Boston and that was someone from Boston actually commented on the post. They were like, well, this is impossible in Boston. I'm like, listen, I lived in Boston. So you picked the wrong guy to pick this battle with. But I was like, my rent was $450. I shared a room with my buddy. The room total was 900. It was a three bedroom. So it was 2,700 total rent, 900 for the room, 450 a piece. I could touch his finger in my sleep. Like we're that close. Like, of course it wasn't the most ideal situation ever, but it allowed me to have a massive savings rate while I was living in a high cost living city. I was still driving the same paid off car, even though I definitely could have upgraded one. Like my income was pretty good. I was rarely eating out when I was going out to bars. Like we would pregame a lot. So I wouldn't spend a lot when I was going out to the bars. And I know I was doing that a lot when I was 22, 23. Like a lot of the people that were disagreeing with me were saying all of these things like that's impossible because you have to spend $2,000 a month on housing. That's impossible because you have to have the $800 a month car payment. You have to budget at least 1K a month for food. And just like some of these numbers that they were spitting out to me were just absolutely ridiculous. And it's kind of sad that these are actual stats. Like a lot of these were median stats that they were pulling from legitimate sources. But if people are thinking in terms of median, like it just seems like they're, you know, they're following the pack of sheep. If you can't make the difficult decisions in the early days, especially to kind of get that gap between your income and expenses, I'm sorry. Like it might be hard. It's not going to be easy, but it can have a massive, massive impact on your finances later on down the road. Yeah. I mean, Cody, I think you're making a good point. This isn't the mediocre personal finance podcast, right? (laughs) This is not the like, hey, do exactly what your neighbor's doing podcast. This is, we're talking about like financial independence. We're talking about, you know, ways to retire as early as possible. And I was in a situation where I was making actually less than $50,000 a year out of college. And I was living in Colorado Springs, which is not Boston or New York City, but it's also not the middle of nowhere. It's not a ghost town. And I was saving, if I remember right, like 60 to 65% of my post-tax income. And I was living fine. Like, yes, I had roommates, but I had my own room, unlike Cody. So I wasn't (laughs) living that ridiculous. I had a paid off car. If you're spending $1,000 a month on groceries, then 
that's wild to me, is it, especially if we're talking about an individual, which is like what this tweet was talking about, right? I think they're talking about food in general, but even so, it's still nuts. For like a 22-year-old, yeah. come on. Yeah, I mean, that's like obviously living outside of your where you should be living. You know, if you're if this is a goal that you have, if you want to retire early, if you want to be financially independent, then just don't do that. Like there's, it's it's not a necessity just because you pulled up a stat and said that, this is what a lot of people do. A lot of people do a lot of dumb things. It doesn't mean you have to do it yourself. <laughs> yeah, I just, oh man, it irks me so much when people share those median statistics and say like, well, that doesn't work in my city. And it's like, well, you know, we've had people on the podcast, we know people personally who live on $2,000 a month in California. Like, wow, is, how is that possible? It's like, well, because they got creative. They got creative with their housing. They are still driving the same paid off car. They're not spending all their money going out and going to restaurants and they're smart with their grocery budget. Like, it's not rocket science, but people just have to be willing to live like a little bit differently than like a Hallmark movie where everything just happens perfectly. You get this sick apartment right when you get your first real job making $50,000 a year. Like, yes, you can do that. And I have a lot of friends who did that, unfortunately, but now they're kind of stuck in this paycheck to paycheck cycle because they do have the $700 a month car payment, the fifteen dollars to $2,000 a month in rent. And unfortunately, a lot of people get stuck in that really crappy cycle. So I'm not blaming this person and all the people who are commenting on this post because they probably don't know better. They probably don't listen to podcasts like ours, but man, that's why we do this, right? It's like, we just want to kind of change the narrative. We want to change the norms a little bit. And the thing is, you don't have to you know, live in scarcity. You don't have to be like super frugal forever. It's literally just about getting those beginning years right. Because if you can get a pretty solid nest egg from like 20 to 30 or 20 to 35, or even if you're older listening to this, like if you can just get like a 10 or 15 year period where you're just stashing a ton of money into the stock market, into real estate, into small business, whatever floats your boat in terms of your investment strategy, that's all you need. And then you're going to be set up for life. Like you don't have to play this like hyper frugal game forever and never get the, that BMW that you really want if you're a car person or never get that nice house that you really want if having a nice house is really important to you. Like you can totally do that down the road, just sacrifice for a couple of years and don't spend on all your impulses. The other thing that gets me with this tweet, Cody, is the one reply, which I know me and you were both looking at that you had brought up. And it's basically just saying that it's pointless to do this. It's pointless to put away $1,000 a month, that it's not going to do anything for you over the long period. That it would be much better to use that money and spend it only on experiences and books and getting a taste of the good life, which will make you work harder <laughs> in the future. And <laughs> <laughs> to, to me, to say it's pointless is short-sighted on a couple avenues. Like one, when I was first investing in like VTI, it was, I want to say just under $90 a share and now it's $220. So for every dollar I was investing then was worth over two times the dollars that I would invest now. So like it is like you are investing more than $1,000 a month almost because you're doing it so much earlier in your journey. Then it's getting to compound. There's you getting dividends. Like, you know, that money is now worth three, four times what it was when I first started. The other thing, that's like the actual tangible outcome part. But then there's the psychological part, building those habits. I mean, it would be like saying, if you can't run a 5K in 17 minutes, then don't even start like walking. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, you're never going to, you're not going to win a 5K. What's the point? you got to start somewhere. you got to start some habits. you got to start building that. Why in the world would you wait until you're like, no, I need to be making at least $100,000 a year before I invest money. Like, that's silly. What's the last part of that tweet again? I was laughing out loud when you read it. If you have it pulled up still, what did it say? It was like, 
if you get a taste of the luxury life, you're going to work harder. Yeah, it's, yeah, part of the tweet, the quote is also getting a taste of the good life, going out to nice dinners, nice vacations will make you want to work harder for those things. So basically, <laughs> like if you're young, only making 50 grand, like you need to go get real bougie so you can know what it could be like. So I don't know if the plan is like, okay, I'm making $50,000 a year. I'm going to go live it up wild, paycheck to paycheck. And then I'm going to stop. And because now I've, I've got all my motivation, I've built my, you know, mental catalog and now I'm going to grind for, you know, 10, 15 years. And then I'll remember what it's like to be bougie. Like that's <laughs> like, no, that's the whole point of like starting off your journey in a little bit more aggressive way because it's easy then you haven't gotten used to those things. And so to me, that's like, if you're trying to make a psychological point, that's completely backwards. Like once you get a taste of what it's like to live that way, good luck going backwards. Oh man, that's going to be my favorite take of the day. Okay. <laughs> Let's round this thing out with one more. This is a great one too, especially for a podcast like ours. It says top ways people retire in real life. One, sell primary and move. Two, lifelong high salary, savings just happen, 401k, pay down giant mortgage, etc. Three, stellar pension program, military, police, state employees, how they don't retire early, dividends, real estate, side hustle, business insider BS. <laughs> okay. We just have so, I mean, yes, you can retire on all of the first three. So he's not wrong about that. Like people have made a ton on the equity in their homes. If they bought a home in the seventies in California and then they sold it and they now have millions Awesome. That's one way you can do it, I guess. You can also have a lifelong high salary. We definitely have had people on this show who made a, made a ton of money. They invested, but savings didn't, didn't just happen. They were intentional about it. Another one, stellar pension program. We've had people on who specifically came on and talked about pensions. We have a couple episodes if you want to check that out. But how they don't retire early, dividends, real estate, side hustles, business insider. I'm like, that's so many of the people we've had on this podcast. I know we recently talked a bit about dividends. We're not huge dividend investors, Justin, but I mean, Warren Buffett is making billions per year off of dividends from like stocks like Coca-Cola. We've had so many people we just talked about today. James and Emily retired off of real estate. We've probably had 50 plus people on this podcast who've retired from real estate. Side hustles. I'm someone whose side hustle allowed them to hit financial independence and like quote unquote, if I wanted to, I could retire early. And there's a lot of other people whose side hustles became full-time things and the same thing happened to them. And then business insider BS, I, I'm probably part of that problem, I guess. I did have a business insider feature somewhat recently. Hopefully this wasn't a subtweet about me. But a lot of those are legitimate people. I know we had Todd Baldwin on. I think we reached out to him because he was on business insider. He's a legit dude. He retired via real estate. So he's he's crossing off two of the don't retire early boxes here. But man, I just, uh, if, if this is really what people think, then it's like, no wonder why they don't start. It's no wonder why they don't invest in the stock market or in real estate or start a side hustle if they genuinely think like this isn't a way to wealth or to early retirement. Yeah, I mean, I think the just the statistics alone behind this would would say just how wrong this is. I mean, I know that there's a large percentage of people who retire early because of real estate. Like we know that when we, it's honestly, sometimes we're like, let's try to find a guest who didn't retire early because of real estate because we've had too many almost. Like there's plenty of those out there dividends like you said that's not like our main focus but to think that it's not a way to do it is ridiculous like obviously you can do it you can get into the arguments over is it the fastest way is it the most efficient way but is it a absolute way yes and then side hustles sure maybe not everyone like has a side hustle that is the primary reason that they retired early but 
it can be a major factor in it. It can be like maybe where that is where most of your investment dollars are coming from. Like your your regular job is paying for your life and, and all that sort of thing and maybe helping you hit some very basic like investing goals, but then the side hustle is letting you take it to the next level. It also is a way for people who don't maybe technically retire early, but like they get to walk away from that corporate job that's making them miserable where they've saved up enough money to now they can kind of live paycheck to paycheck, that Coast 5 mentality where they don't need to save anymore for retirement because they built up enough of a nest egg for that. And now they just need some money for kind of paying the day-to-day bills for a time period. And so they go do some side hustles. And then thinking that like every article that's out there is just pure clickbait. Yeah, sure. There's a lot of clickbait out there, but there are plenty of people who they are writing these stories about who we know them personally and they are legitimate stories. And They did retire early through legitimate means. This just feels, again, like another kind of string of the tweets we've saw where it's like an excuse of like why you can't retire early. And it's just to me, all it's doing is demotivating people like this is not motivational to me. This is like just to say, hey, if you don't have a primary home that has appreciated a ton that you could sell and move from, if you're not making a crazy high salary that you're willing to work at for a very long time or you're not a part of the military, police, or state employee, and you probably can't retire early. And I would say almost no one we brought on the show like checks those boxes. <laughs> no. I do just want to add one thing on the last part there, the Biz Insider BS, just because I've had some business insider features, and some of them do seem ridiculous. And I've even been like looking at them. I'm like, really? But Business Insider like will take my tax returns and my bank statements. Like I have to prove so much for them to put any number in that article's headline or even within the article itself. Like, they are doing their due diligence. So yes, those people, if, it, if it's like this person is making you know $200,000 a month from X weird side hustle, a lot of times that's true. Even as crazy as it might seem, like they are doing their due diligence and checking. Well, Justin, got to say, this was one of our funnest episodes to record and hopefully you listeners enjoyed it. Actually, if you did enjoy this episode, we'll obviously post it in our Facebook group that we do every single week, the show.com slash community. Get a little conversation started in there. Let us know which one of these takes you enjoyed, which ones were the most ridiculous. Maybe you disagree with us, which is totally cool. We're we're happy to battle a bit in our in our Facebook comments. But let us know. Again, that's the show.com slash community. And all of the notes and links for this one will be at the show.com slash bad takes. That's show.com slash B-A-D-T-A-K-E-S. And if you guys like this and the format and Maybe you guys can send us tweets. Who knows how this will evolve? We always just want to deliver the best content possible. So maybe we'll have a bad takes two, three, four. Who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? But let us know in the Facebook group. We'll continue the conversation there. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to another episode of The Fi Show. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us, the best way to do that is to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Share this with a friend. And also, don't forget, you can find 200 plus episodes and all the information you'd ever want to have about these episodes over at thefyshow.com. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button because that way, every Wednesday, you can have our latest episode delivered straight to your phone. Until next time. Hey, real quick before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available, the very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million, available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.